Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 287. Today's big Bible question, is strong language ever appropriate? Are our best efforts to reach God actually scubalon or rubbish and poop? Well, happy Friday to you, dear friends. That question, as odd as it is, is going to make sense much more in a few minutes, so hang in there. Only three and a half days until my wife, Lord Willing, returns from the Deep South, and the adult-to-child ratio in our home is back to a more healthy two-to-five, rather than the current most terrifying one-to-five ratio that we are at now. So if anybody out there listening has any robot wives or robot enforcer security guards, that sort of thing, hopefully with superpowers and laser blasters that I could borrow for the next few days, that would be awesome. And I promise you, I will return it to you, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday, something like that. Just let me know. Today's readings include 1 Kings chapter 12, Psalms 94, Ezekiel 42, and Philippians chapter 3. Now, if Bible chapters were college football teams, which is a sentence that has never been uttered in all of human history, I feel like Philippians chapter 3 would be like an Ohio State or Oklahoma. Maybe not the very best of all time, Roll Tide, but always a contender and loaded with just amazingness from top to bottom. So we'll focus on Philippians chapter 3 today, and there are any number of verses and concepts in that chapter that are worthy of our attention, and we could go a mile deep into each one of them. For today, though, we're going to focus on one particular verse in that passage, really one particular word in that passage, and it's not a very nice word, but it's going to reveal a very amazing truth to us. Now, you might think for a while that today's discussion is about strong language or Bible translation or vocabulary, but actually keep listening because we're actually, we're going to go much deeper than that. In talking about all of those things, we really are going to be talking about how our best efforts fail to measure up and also how the wonders of this world just don't compare with our future in Christ. So don't get lost in the weeds. But let's do talk for a minute about strong language, because the Bible has a lot of strong language. And if you listen to this podcast every day, you kind of know that by now. Now, I'm not talking about swearing or cussing, and I'm not talking about foul language or dirty language, but language that is like a cup of water to the face or a stinging slap or sitting down on a sharp needle. Now, there are many Christians who wince and totally avoid such strong language, and honestly, I think that's appropriate for the most part. If you utilize strong language every day, it eventually becomes commonplace and it just totally loses its power. But is it ever appropriate and right to use strong and maybe even offensive language? I think the answer might be yes, based on these verses from the Bible that we're about to read. So let me give you an example of four verses in the Bible with strong language in it. Um, I'm going to start with number four, because number one is probably the strongest. John 6, 51 through 53, Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Now I know what you're thinking. 
you're thinking probably the same thing the Jews who were listening to Jesus at the time were thinking. What is this guy going on about? Well, we've already talked about John 6 in quite a bit of detail, so do come to BibleReadingPodcast.com and search for John 6, and you'll find that episode. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it was a long one. And that's a fantastic chapter, but yeah, Jesus just lays it out right there. He is talking metaphorically, I believe, but he is talking in the strongest sort of language possible. How about 2 Peter chapter 2? I'm going to read a few selections from that chapter. Bold and arrogant, says Peter, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. These men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instincts, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you with eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. So yeah, that's strong language. Dogs, you know, coming back and, well, you know what they do with their vomit. It's gross. Peter, what, what's going on here? Well, there's a time, I think, for strong language. You might say, well, Jesus never did that. Well, actually, he did. We already read one. Here's another one. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good, says Jesus to the leaders of the people in Matthew 12, 34. Uh, and you might say, well, I don't think God would approve of that, except... In Malachi chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, and God is the one speaking, Look, I am going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. So, honestly, I could go on and on and on, because there are a myriad example of examples of strong language in the Bible, but those four verses, I think, suffice to make the point. And today's chapter in Philippians will underline it. So, let's go ahead and read Philippians 3. You be looking for a strong and potentially offensive phrase, and way more important than that, don't get lost in the strong word, but in the strong point that is being made by Paul. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. 
My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that if I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. So, did you hear the offensive word? Now, if you were reading the English Standard Version and many other modern versions, you probably wouldn't hear the offending word because they use things like garbage or rubbish or refuse. Uh, But in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, you can see that they use the word dung, which I think is fairly close. The word in the ESV is rubbish, but honestly, that's a very sanitized and watered-down translation, and I'm not sure how how I feel about that, because the thing is, Paul is making a very, very strong point that doesn't sound nearly as strong when a word like garbage or refuse is used. Is used. Now, there's a saying among those who translate the Bible and other documents, traditore, traditore, which is an Italian phrase that I probably didn't pronounce all that great, but it means translator, traitor. And I think this is a case where it applies, at least to a degree. Translation is a difficult task, and most modern Bible translations are excellent in conveying the original meaning and sense of the Bible documents. But when there are several modern translations who translate the Greek word skubalon to things like rubbish or garbage or things along that line. I would rate that as needs improvement for a very simple reason. Paul's word is much stronger than rubbish. Now, I learned early in marriage that when my wife asks me how her outfit looks or how a meal tastes, to say fine is to fail to convey something positive because fine is not a very strong word. It means fair, or adequate, or okay, and that is not how one wishes to describe his wife's cooking or outfit. Now, if I send one of the kids to tell my wife that she looks amazing and stunning tonight, and that child goes and tells my wife, hey, dad says you look okay tonight, then that child has failed to deliver an accurate message. Now, if Paul writes that he counts all things prior to Christ as scubalon, compared to the monumental joy and wonder of knowing Christ, and a translator waters that word down to something like garbage or rubbish or refuse, then I believe we might have come very close to failing to properly translate the verse. It's very easy to see why the translators might be having a hard time, because Paul is using an offensive word, at least to some people, 
here in this passage. And the Greek word skubalon basically means feces or poop. And like many words for waste, uh, there is a spectrum of offense in most languages that describe that word. Some are nice and childish, some are profane. And Paul doesn't use a profane word here, but he uses a very strong word. So we're going to turn to New Testament Greek scholar Dan Wallace, who is extremely biblical and extremely conservative. And this is what he says uh, on his commentary on this passage when he's talking about uh, scubalon. He says, in Philippians 3.8, the best translation of scubala seems to be something along the lines in Hellenistic Greek of something between uh, crap and the S word. However, due to English sensibilities and considering the readership, Christians, of the Bible, a softer term such as dung, which is used by the Net Bible and the CSB, is most appropriate. They grasp the connotations here, while many Modern translations only see the term as implying worthlessness, but Paul's view of his former life in righteousness is odious to him, odious, smelly, as ours should be to us. The best translation, therefore, says Wallace, who is a Greek scholar who actually wrote the Greek grammar that I used when I was in seminary, the best translation, therefore, is one that picks up both worthlessness and revulsion and probably a certain amount of shock value. So, strong language here, and it's not the only time that Paul uses strong language. You might recall from Galatians just a few days ago that Paul wished those who were combining works and circumcision with salvation by grace through faith would go ahead and castrate themselves, which is another instance of really, really strong language. So why so strong, Paul? If he was here, I bet he would say, that he used strong language, and again, not foul language, not swearing, but strong language to express a very strong truth. All of his righteousness that he recounts in the first few verses was not sufficient to save him. All of his righteous acts are dung, crap, utter and disgusting garbage, even though Paul's good works and righteousness was actually very, very strong compared to the average human. And that's exactly his point. As zealous and righteous as he was prior to Christ, all of that amounted to dung. And in another place, he writes, quoting from, I believe it's Isaiah, that all of our righteousness adds up to nothing more than filthy rags. And me even saying filthy rags I'm being polite using that translation because uh, the real word is quite a bit mm, stronger than that. And it's another instance of passionate and strong language. Paul wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that good works can't save us. Being good can't save us. Only Christ can save us by grace through faith. When we are saved, our previous accomplishments are worthless compared to the glories that awaits us because of Christ. So let's close with our friend Martin Lloyd-Jones, who helps us think through this passage on a deep way. Dr. Jones writes, God is not interested in the clothing or the outward appearance. He's interested in the heart and how well we meet his demands. God does not ask how much good you've done. He says, have you loved me with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength? In the Old Testament, he puts it like this. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It is Isaiah 64, 6. Paul, who thought he had clothed himself in very beautiful garments and had amassed a great mound of righteousness as a Pharisee, 
came to see that his goodness was nothing but dung and refuse. All this talk about goodness and all that we are doing is vile refuse in the sight of God. Self-righteousness is foul because it's self-centered and it lacks the most glorious element of holiness and beauty and self-abnegation and forgetfulness of self. I cannot atone for my sin. I can't pay for my sin. How could a man be just with God, says Job 9.2? Who shall dwell in the holy hill of the Lord, says Psalm 15? Who can dwell with God with burning fire? These are great questions, says Dr. Jones, and it's because men and women know nothing about these things that they reject this miraculous supernatural gospel. For that reason, they are complete and total failures because they can't change themselves. They can't fight sin. They can't deal with the devil. They can't deal with death. They have nothing to say before the Lord God in their defense. And the last reason women and women reject the gospel is because they don't realize what it has to offer them. They don't know because they're not interested in knowing. They haven't seen their need. They think the good news is an exhortation or a kind of glorified socialism or pacifism, but that is not the gospel, which is proved by the Old Testament where we read that God gave the people a bunch of laws saying if they kept it, it would save them, but they could not keep it. As for the idea that the gospel is some sort of glorified socialism or pacifism, consider the teaching of the New Testament, you who think you can put yourself right and stand before God. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? That's how you have to live. You say you're going to imitate Jesus of Nazareth because he's a great teacher and a great man. But have you ever considered what he was really like? Have you ever looked at his life? Have you ever looked at his actions? If Jesus of Nazareth only came into this world to teach, to tell me what to do, and to give me an example, then he damns me more than anything else I have ever heard of. The Ten Commandments are bad and hard enough, but Jesus Christ's example, I am utterly undone. If I have to live like him to save myself and to stand before God, I'm already in hell, says Dr. Jones. I know nothing that so condemns me as the person in life of Jesus of Nazareth because he was so perfect. But blessed be the name of God, that's not the gospel. What has that sort of teaching got to offer to failures? Well, look at modern moral people living their good lives, as they say. What do they have to give someone in the gutter? What do they have to give to someone who has sinned away all chastity, purity, and honesty? What do they have to give to people who've lost their character? Nothing. Nothing at all. Absolutely nothing. Thank God that is not the gospel. This is the gospel that was preached by the apostles in the beginning. Our Lord himself began to preach it. The apostles continued preaching it, and it was verified by the powers that given them. Oh, what is this gospel? It's a glorious thing. It is a good news that tells us every one of our needs has been met, every problem has been solved, and it has all been done in this blessed person, Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he? A man? No, the God-man. God the Son who came into this world, two natures in one person. He's not only a man, he is a man, but he is also God in the flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. He took on our nature. He faced our problems. He stood with us. He asked to be baptized when he had no need to be baptized putting himself right alongside us. He met the four enemies, the four final problems, and he never sinned, never disobeyed any single commandment. He lived a perfect life. So how can we be saved by that? Well, we certainly can't be saved by doing good because our righteousness would have to 
meet the level of Jesus's righteousness to be saved. And as we've already heard, my best efforts and your best efforts add up to dung, which reminds me of one of my favorite jokes. What's brown and sounds like a bell? Dung. And that's what my righteousness adds up to. Nothing. Less than nothing. It's odious. It's smelly. It's nothing. So I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless of trying to get into heaven if it has to be on the strength of my good works and my good character. Yes, I'm a pastor. I've been in ministry for a long time. I've never murdered anybody. I've never robbed a bank. But I've done so much. I've fallen away so many times. My righteousness will never save me. It wouldn't save an ant. So what's the gospel? Be good, do good, try hard, and that'll be enough? No, you have to live up to the level of Jesus for it to be enough, and none of us will do that. The gospel is he already did it. Christianity is not a religion. Religion is about what you have to do to reach God. Christianity is about what Jesus has done to reach you. So rejoice, turn to him in wholehearted faith, believing that his death on the cross was for you. That's the gospel. Believe in faith, follow Jesus turn from your sins, believe that his death was in your place. That's the good news. The good news is you don't have to earn your way into heaven. The good news is you don't have to climb up to reach God. He himself came down to us to reach us. Revel in that and turn to him in faith believing and share that message with a lost and dying world that is either trying their best to live it up and sin hard or trying their best to ignore God or trying their best to do what he wants them to do and failing in it. Well, the good news is we don't have to fail anymore because Jesus ultimately succeeded. Praise be his name. We continue with 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about that, he stayed in Egypt, where he fled from King Solomon's presence. Jeroboam stayed in Egypt, but they summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father made our yoke harsh. You, therefore, lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam replied, Go away for three days and then return to me. So the people left. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, How do you advise me to respond to this people? And they replied, Today, if you will be a servant to this people and serve them, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice of the elders who had advised him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and attended him. And he asked them, What message do you advise that we send back to the people who said to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him told him, This is what you should say to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. This is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had ordered. Return to me on the third day. Then the king answered the people harshly. He rejected the advice the elders had given him and spoken to them according to the young men's advice. 
My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with hip whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. The king did not listen to the people, because this turn of events came from the Lord to carry out his word, which the Lord had spoken through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered him, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Israel, return to your tents. David, now look after your own house. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the Israelites living in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam managed to get into the chariot and flee to Jerusalem. Israel is still in rebellion against the house of David today. When all of Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they summoned him to the assembly and made him king over all the rest of Israel. No one followed the house of David except the tribe of Judah alone. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mobilized 180,000 fit young soldiers from the entire house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. You are not to march up and fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Each one of you return home, for this situation is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went back according to the word of the Lord. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built Penuel. Jeroboam said to himself, The kingdom might now return to the house of David. If these people regularly go to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will return to their Lord, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and go back to the king of Judah. So the king sought advice. Then he made two golden calves and said to the people, Going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you, Israel. Here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set up one in Bethel and put the other in Dan, and this led to sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. Jeroboam also made shrines in the high places and made priests from the ranks of the people who were not Levites. Jeroboam made a festival in the eighth month on the fifteenth month day of the month, like the festival in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar. He made this offering in Bethel to sacrifice to the calves he had made. He also stationed the priests in Bethel for the high places he had made. He offered sacrifices on the altar he had set up in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month. He chose this month on his own. He made a festival for the Israelites, offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. Psalm chapter 94 verse 1. Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine. Rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? They pour out arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. Lord, they crush your people, they oppress your heritage, they kill the widow and the resident alien and murder the fatherless. They say the Lord doesn't see it. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. Pay attention, you stupid people. Fools, when will you be wise? Can the one who shaped the ear not hear? The one who formed the eye not see? The one who instructs nations? The one who teaches mankind knowledge? Does he not discipline? The Lord knows the thoughts of mankind. They are futile. Lord, how happy is anyone you discipline and teach from your law to give him relief from troubled times until a pit is dug for the wicked. 
The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage, for the administration of justice will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who stands up for me against the wicked? Who takes a stand for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my helper, I would soon rest in the silence of death. If I say my foot is slipping, your faithful love will support me, Lord. When I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Can a corrupt throne be your ally, a throne that makes evil laws? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord is my refuge. My God is the rock of my protection. He will pay them back for their sins and destroy them for their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. Ezekiel chapter 42 verse 1. Then the man led me out by the way of the north gate into the outer court. He brought me to the group of chambers opposite the temple yard and opposite the building to the north. Along the length of the chambers, which was 175 feet, there was an entrance to the north. The width was 87 and a half feet. Opposite the 35-foot space belonging to the inner court and opposite the paved surface belonging to the outer court, the structure rose gallery by gallery in three tiers. In front of the chambers was a walkway toward the inside, 17 and a half feet wide and 175 feet long, and their entrances were on the north. The upper chambers were narrower because the galleries took away more space from them than from the lower and middle stories of the building, for they were arranged in three stories and had no pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper chambers were set back from the ground more than the lower and middle stories. A wall on the outside ran in front of the chambers parallel to them, Toward the outer court, it was 87 and a half feet long. For the chambers in the outer court were 87 and a half feet long, while those facing the great hall were 175 feet long. At the base of these chambers, there was an entryway on the east side as one enters them from the outer court. In the thickness of the wall of the court toward the south, there were chambers facing the temple yard in the western building, with a passageway in front of them, just like the chambers that faced north. Their length and width, as well as their exits, measurements, and entrances were identical. The entrance at the beginning of the passageway, the way in front of the corresponding wall as one enters on the east side, was similar to the entrances of the chambers that were on the south side. Then the man said to me, The northern and southern chambers that face the courtyard are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord will eat the most holy offerings. There they will deposit the most holy offerings, the grain offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings, for the place is holy." Once the priests have entered, they are not to go out from the holy area to the outer court until they have removed the clothes they minister in, for these are holy. They are to put on other clothes before they approach the public area. When he finished measuring inside the temple complex, he led me out by way of the gate that faced east and measured all around the complex. He measured the east side with a measuring rod. It was 875 feet by the measuring rod. He measured the north side. It was 875 feet by the measuring rod. He measured the south side. It was 870 feet by the measuring rod. Then he turned to the west side and measured 875 feet by the measuring rod. He measured the temple complex on all four sides. It had a wall around it, 875 feet long and 875 feet wide to separate the holy from the common. Amen. Well, friends, may the light of the Lord shine on you. May his goodness and his word dwell in your heart by faith. Good day to you and Godspeed.